You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins for Thursday, February 2nd. I'm Portia Cook, your news director. And I'm Kira McKinley, your assistant news director. And we are the voices behind the Rocky Mountain Review news broadcast that airs every Tuesday and Thursday between 4 and 5 p.m. We here at the Rocky Mountain Review strive to give you the most up-to-date, unbiased, and factual news. On today's show, you will hear more about Rick Miranda's new role at Colorado State University. And find out which Colorado healthcare giant had a recent security breach. This and more with me in local news. And later on in the show, assistant music director Bailey Liverman sits down with jazz musician David Lawrence to talk about music influences and more. And with that, let's move right into campus news with Lee's and Pell. My name is Lee Zimpel, and these are your campus news updates. Wednesday was a day full of firsts, like the 1st of February, or the first day without Rick Miranda as CSU's interim president. In an email sent out to the community Tuesday to announce his final day, Miranda called the last seven months wonderful. He isn't completely done with the cabinet, though. Miranda will temporarily fill the role of executive vice president as President Amy Parsons takes over. Parsons swiftly confirmed her first day in an email to students and staff Wednesday morning, where she outlined a plan already set in motion to discuss an important issue on campus, graduate student compensation. Talks about the issue will happen as soon as Thursday. You can find more about Parsons' background and the process of her becoming CSU's new president on CSU Source News. The Black and African American Cultural Center has a calendar full of events planned throughout February for Black History Month. And this year's theme follows the concept of the black print. The theme is that black and African culture acts as an influential blueprint for American culture in our music, fashion, and history. The focus of the events double as education and celebration. With Fort Collins being largely white, there's a value in both educating the influence of black culture and celebrating it so that the students who do have those roots are supported. Andrew Brown, an executive member of the United Men of Color Student Organization, told the Collegian that he's hopeful the events he helped plan will bring all students together in celebration and support. The next event, open to all supporting students, will be a screening of The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, which is a documentary following her historic legacy. It'll play on Tuesday the 7th in the Behavioral Sciences Building. That's all for Campus News. I'm Lee Zimpel. Up next, find out what Colorado healthcare giant is warning their patients of a recent data breach. This and more in local news with Portia Cook. In local news, when you go to a healthcare provider, you trust that they care for you in the best way possible. But what about caring for your personal information? Well, Colorado healthcare giant UC Health is warning patients and employees to pay extra attention to activity involving their personal information following a data breach involving one of its vendors. The breach was the result of a lone cybercriminal who successfully accessed a variety of records held by business operations software company Diligent Corp. UC Health officials told the Coloradoan that the documents affected included names, addresses, dates of birth, and treatment information. Social security numbers and other information may have also been accessed. If you are concerned that your data has been compromised, you are encouraged by UC Health to call 855-624-6798. In other news, a former Poudre River Library District employee and Fort Collins activist pled no contest on Wednesday to theft, a Class 4 felony. A 13-month-long investigation revealed that Johanna Uloa Gairon spent more than $100,000 of the library district's money on personal purchases from 2016 to 2020. 
The purchases included clothes, toys, electronics, food, jewelry, airfare, furniture, sports tickets, and more. Police told the Coloradoan that money for the purchases came from the library's budget for outreach services and various programs supporting culturally diverse, underserved community members in outlying areas of the tax-funded library district. As a part of her plea agreement, Gyron received a sentence of three years of probation and is required to complete 150 hours of community service. While on probation, Gyron can only use a computer for work and must get a judge's permission to travel internationally. Gyron is also ordered to pay $100,000 in restitution within 30 days. We here at the Rocky Mountain Review strive to give you the most up-to-date, unbiased, and factual news. You've heard that before. And as a part of this commitment, we are continuously focused on improving local journalism by being a part of the Northern Colorado Deliberative Journalism Project. The NOCO Deliberative Journalism Project is an ongoing project initiated by the CSU Center for Public Deliberation, the Fort Collins Coloradoan, and the Journalism and Media Communications and the Political Science Departments at Colorado State University. The overall goal of the project, and right here in this newsroom, is to work together to improve local journalism and how information about local issues is gathered, shared, and engaged with. Other project members include the CSU Department of Languages, Literature, and Culture, the CSU Honors Program, KUNC, the Poudre River Public Library District, FC Public Media, and the League of Women Voters of Larimer County. According to the Coloradoan, if you are interested in learning more, the Deliberative Journalism Project will host an online community update on Zoom on February 9th from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. and again from 5.30 to 7 p.m. Those looking to register for this event can do so at col.st forward slash WLZPO. I'm Portia Cook, and that's all for your local news. Up next, find out what Black History Month activities are taking place on and off campus next with me in music events and entertainment news. Hey, this is DJ Asher. And this is DJ Dallas. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Events news, it's Black History Month, which means there are many things you can do on and off campus to participate. Like many smaller Western communities, Fort Collins started off as the home to a small but vibrant Black community. You can explore the Black history of Fort Collins through a Black History walk slash bike tour, an exploration of local sites that tell the story of Black African-American residents in Fort Collins. You can download the brochure that accompanies the tour or download the brochure to follow along on your mobile device. It should be noted that many of the sites included in the tour are private residences and should be viewed from a public area such as the sidewalk. 
Additional information on Black African American history in Fort Collins, as well as the tour brochure, can be found at fcgov.com slash history preservation slash Black Fort Collins tour. You can join Colorado State University for a full month of Black History Month events and activities that highlight the accomplishments and contributions of African, African American, and Pan-African people and cultures. Some of the events include movies, open mic nights, keynote speakers, roundtable talks, a hair show, and a Southern-style lunch at Aspen Grill. All Black History Month programs and events can be found online at the Black African American Cultural Center's webpage at baacc.colostate.edu. You can visit the back office on the third floor of the Lori Student Center in room 335. If you are looking for more things to do, you can always find the most up-to-date music and entertainment events on the KCSU events calendar found at kcsufm.com. I am Portia Cook, and that's all for your music events and entertainment news. Up next, KCSU's assistant muse director, Bailey Liverman, sits down with jazz musician David Lawrence to talk shop about influences, new music, and more. Hi, I'm Bailey Liverman, the Assistant Music Director here at KCSU, and this month on the Monthly Music Podcast, I sat down with David Lawrence following the release of his album, Lean In, to talk about his album, its inspirations, and a couple other things regarding him as a musician. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. How did you start in music? I kind of, I didn't start with music. I started writing poems mm-hmm. when I was in high school. I, I mean, I, I got into it because I liked rap. Like I liked Eminem and stuff when I was growing up. I became like the regional slam master at my college. And I went to like the Birmingham National Slam and was really involved in that world. And then kind of realized no one really cared about poetry that much. And I sort of, it's not that like, not that I care that much what other people think, but I, I just figured if I got music involved, it would make my poems more impactful and I could write songs and people would listen to it more and it'd be cool. And I always kind of wanted to try the guitar. So I, I, I bought a guitar for like 20 bucks and I just sat there on like, I think it was winter break or something from my freshman year of college. And I just was obsessed with the guitar. And fortunately, my dad is an amazing musician. He plays guitar, piano, and has a great ear. My sister, twin sister, plays guitar and and bass. And they just kind of helped me, gave me some chords and watched some YouTube and just got completely obsessed with the guitar. And I mean, when you first play an instrument, it's not like you just jump into like making songs. I mean, it's like, it takes a long road of sort of working on just the fundamentals of how to use the instrument. And uh, I was way beyond, it was, that was way beyond me. I mean, I didn't even know that like C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Like I didn't know the notes. I didn't know if the instrument was in tune or out of tune. I could like barely hear even if the instrument was like in tune or not. You know, I was singing. My sister used to come next to my room and be like, shut up, shut up. Do you not hear how bad you sound? Oh, my God, I can't handle it. And she finds it so funny that people pay me to sing music now. So it's pretty, so funny. yeah, it's just a testament out there that a you're not really ever too old to start because I was like 19 or 18, 19 when I started, which is a lot. I don't recommend starting out late. I mean, it'd be better to start when you're younger. But, you know, and then same with like your voice. I mean, my voice really was terrible. And I don't think I have like an amazing voice now, but I am a quote unquote professional singer. And, you know, it's definitely workable. <laughs> you know, people say that they really like it. It's, it's come like in a tremendous way from like where it was. So I think a lot of people have this in, in idea that music is sort of this innate gift that some people have and some people don't, especially when it comes to vocals. And it's like, no, like everything is an instrument that you have to work on. Some people, of course, have, you know, a more proclivity to it when they start off and they 
just, you know, it's usually people that come from really musical families and it's just in kind of ingrained in them and stuff. And then some people have to work a little more, but the distance you can go for anyone is so far if you put your mind to it and you just want yeah. to try it out. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it's more like math than you would expect. You can look at it from sort of any angle and sort of get a, a lot out of it. So I think that it's probably that each person is going to kind of have a way that they are going to want to approach it or that's that, that's going to like mesh with their sensibilities and the way that they think about things already. And they're going to be able to look at music from that lens. And that can be the gateway and the door that gets into it for them, you know, yeah. Where, like for me, like, like for some people, regardless of if whether you like it or not, music is math. Like, yeah, it just is like it's it's that's just the truth of it. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's frequencies, it's intervals, it's patterns that happen. But so obviously that's like one good angle to look at it. And it's an angle that you sort of have to look at it eventually if you want to be able to communicate with other musicians well, if you want to write music on like paper and stuff like that. But you, you know, I've had amazing musicians that they can't tell you a single chord. They can't tell you a single note that they're playing. And they're some of the best musicians in the world, you know, and because they, they just don't look at it that way. You know, I mean, if, if you want to be able to communicate quickly and easily with other people, looking at it from all the views and seeing it for what it is, is critical. Uh, what type of music did you listen to? Like, as a kid. Like I was saying with the poetry, I was real stoked on mm -hmm. underground hip hop. Eminem was like kind of the gateway. He I, obviously not underground, but then that kind of led me to like Sage Francis and Bill and just Aesop Rock and different people that were doing. I mean, there's probably a whole world of it now because I'm not into that scene anymore. But <laughs> just just this this type of hip hop that was so much more about the content of the words and all that. I was really into that. And then I kind of got into when I started playing guitar, kind of everything sort of changed. And I just kind of started getting obsessed with guitar music, like just old blues music, old like Delta blues, Mississippi blues, then Chicago blues, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, B.B. King. And then that kind of led me into the classic rock realm that was basically blues music, like Led Zeppelin, a lot of Jimi Hendrix, Steve Ray Vaughan, that Cream, Eric Clapton. That's all kind of British guys. It was like British bands hearing Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Willie Dixon and then, you know, interpreting that and then adding this like rock element to it and then feeding it back to the United States. It was this like interesting sort of cyclical thing that happened with with blues music and rock and roll at that time. So I just got really into that. I was like, oh, it's so guitar driven. Jimmy Page, like this is amazing. That was that was kind of my roots. And then eventually that kind of that blues playing so fun and it's so exciting and it's super easy to improvise with other people, at least the way it's taught. I mean, it's like it's a 12 bar progression that yeah. sort of just repeats over and over again. And I mean, there's an album al albums out there that you could listen to that the whole album or like 90% of the album will be the same exact chord progression in different keys and with with different feels and different vibes and different energy and different tempos and different licks. And, you know, when you really get into the blues, it's not repetitive. It's not the same. It's like truly endless. But for me, where I was, it was like, OK, I feel like I'm sort of just falling in the same pattern here and I'm not exploring. I'm not stretching out. Hello, everyone. My name is Aaron Fuller, and I'm the assistant podcast director here at KCSU. I wanted to jump in here and discuss the next few minutes of the David Lawrence interview. Lawrence is going to start talking about his music experience growing up, specifically the genres of music and the artists he listened to. One of these people is Django Reinhardt, who is a Romani French jazz guitarist from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. His music changed the jazz scene, and many people have labeled this genre as the pejorative term gypsy jazz. This term has a lot of history for Romani people, and the term is mostly used by non-Romani artists. The genre itself is also called Romani jazz or jazz manu 
Manouche, but the other term is used because it is its own music genre. With that being said, Lawrence takes inspiration from Django and his music style, and he speaks with respect regarding this term. If you wish to learn more about Django and his music style, I suggest the article, What Do We Call the Music of Django Reinhardt? from the website latonique.news. Thank you all for listening, and without further ado, we'll continue the David Lawrence interview. What do I need to do? Oh, I need to figure out what jazz is, because jazz is sort of the next step in blues. It's it's kind of a, right after the blues, what happened? There's early jazz, there's Charlie Christian, there's Django Reinhardt. And I just listened to the music of Django, who revolutionized the jazz guitar and took it as like into a becoming a lead instrument. And I was completely obsessed. And that was going on like 10, 9, 10 years ago. Yeah. And I started a gypsy jazz band in Denver and became completely enthralled with the music of Django Reinhardt. And that sort of has been this guiding force for my music in in terms of learning. Jazz really teaches you to kind of look at the whole fretboard and like look at the chord progressions in this bigger way, you know, where you really see how the harmony is playing with each other. You really, they explore some pretty like more complex chord progressions, which really helps my songwriting. And then when I write a song now, it might sound nothing like Django Reinhardt or nothing like Gypsy Jazz. It might sound like Americana roots music or whatever, but that's all informed by the music that I learned from blues, from Led Zeppelin, and then eventually Django Reinhardt. And it's like, I'll have a song where, oh, this sounds kind of like a rock song, but there's like a minor seven flat five into like a flat nine chord. And it's like a whole reharmonization of like a normal one, six, two, five. And it's like, okay, that that's because it's similar to this Django song, even though it doesn't sound like jazz at all, but it's the chords I learned and the licks and stuff. So are you perhaps a Mississippi John Hurt fan? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I notice a lot of like the same style of Travis picking and stuff in your music. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of, a lot of Travis picking, which goes back of course to Merle Travis and Chet Atkins and Tommy Emanuel is the uh, kind of contemporary master of that style. I I, I love using a thumb pick and like alternate baseline. Yeah. Mississippi John Hurt. And you've heard of Elizabeth Cotton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's like, big fan. she's amazing too. And she played the guitar upside down. I have no idea how (laughs) she did that. Yeah. Tell me about your newest album. Like what tracks are your favorite, like the most meaningful and like some common themes that you notice? The album, it, it stretches like the past, you know, like I said, sort of decade of, of writing and thinking about music in this different, in this way of trying to figure out like what I want to do with music. What, 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 do I, what am I trying to say kind of? And what, what are the songs that are really summing up my life in this period of my life and, and, and bringing in the influences that I want to? And I think at the end of the day, the album is, is basically... It's an Americana Roots album. It, it's my songs. It's kind of a singer-songwriter vibe, but then it also just brings in all these influences of early blues and jazz and stuff. And the songs on it that I, I like the most, I, the title track is really cool. It's it's I, I recorded the whole album, so I had nine tracks, completely tracked, mixed, and mastered. And I was you know go, getting into the next phase of the of the album you know life, which is getting album art, doing promotions, finding how to do marketing, and getting an album release tour set up. And I wrote this song called Lean In. And I wrote it because me and my wife, my wife's pregnant with our first child. And the song, I was like, you know, reminiscing about all the history that Yuko and I have and what we've gone through and thinking about that first time that I leaned in to kiss her for our first kiss, like going on 12 years ago, whatever that is. And it was just this moment in our lives where she was supposed to, we were supposed to hang out, you know, we had hung out a few times and she knew I was into her and I I was hoping she was into me. And 
I didn't want to be like stuck in the friend zone. And I was like, okay, like tonight's the night. I'm going to, I'm going to make a move. I'm going to like lean in try to kiss her or whatever. We, we were living at Shambhala Mountain Center, which is that Buddhist retreat center, which is like 50 miles north of here for Fort Collins and Red Feather Lakes. And we, so we lived in these little cabins like on site. And I was, I was the chef there. She was working guest registrar. We like lived, we studied Buddhism. We lived there. And I invited her over to the cabin and she is like prolifically late. So she was supposed to be there at seven. She didn't get there. I like totally gave up. I was like super upset. Like, and there's no cell phones. Like there's no, there's no service up there. So it's like such a, you know, distinct thing from our lives. It's people will just, oh, we'll play it by ear. Oh, we'll figure it out. Oh, whatever. You know, and then you just text them. Oh, I'm tired. I'm not going to come or, or, mm-hmm. or like, wait, where are you? Oh, I'm going to be late. Whatever. Like no one cares. No one, people don't make plans the way that they used to. Living at SMC was like this, you know, you had to be at a certain place at a yeah. certain time or like you had no way to get in touch with them and you couldn't just be like, oh, like, oh, sorry, something came up, you know? Yeah. So seven o'clock goes by, eight o'clock goes by, nine o'clock goes by. I think like three hours later, 10 o'clock, like close to 10 o'clock, I, I hear that knock on my door and I was like, you know, mm-hmm. and she was there and th- this song is just that story of my life, like pretending like, oh yeah, I forgot you were coming. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then trying to lean in to the first kiss and she yeah. leaned back and it's been 10, 12 years and we have a little baby boy and a house in Longmont and best thing that ever happened to me by a long shot. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me more. So you're Buddhist, yeah? Yeah. And she is too. Mm-hmm. How does that like influence your music if it does at all? Or just like your outlook on how you create? Actually, I mean, it actually probably does influence the way I create in a lot of ways because I teach songwriting workshops and stuff for people sometimes. And one of the things I talk about a lot is that songwriting is about painting a picture for someone that evokes a feeling kind of, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that songwriting is, but that's one aspect of it. It's it's giving someone this 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 landscape in their head and these images that just pull something out of them. You know, it's like as opposed to saying like using emotional language, you know, saying, oh, something happened to me and I feel so sad and I'm distraught and I'm hurt and I'm upset. All that emotional language, it doesn't really evoke that emotion in the listener very often. It's sort of just saying you're, where you're coming from. But when you can really get into someone and be like, I still smell the perfume of her on the empty pillow next to me and the empty bottle of, you know, Jack Daniels is laughing at me. You know, it's like, okay, well, the smell, the feeling of that smell of someone that's not there and the, you know, the 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 look of an empty glass, like all these, those images might actually make someone feel something. Yeah. So when you're talking about how to create those ideas, well, how do you do that? You have to see them or feel them in your own life. But you can only do that if you're present. You can only do that if you're actually being grounded and in yourself and in your life and being in a creative like expression of yourself and in your life. And that is Buddhism. Buddhism is about being in the moment and seeing life for what it is without the veils that we put over our eyes every day. Mm-hmm. So when you can, if you can do that authentically and be yourself authentically, then you can see the world authentically and you can convey that into songs in a way that is actually going to be really impactful for people. So yes, Buddhism definitely gets into my songwriting just from the very essence of learning what it means to be trying to be yourself every day and trying to let the 
the veils of all the stuff that you carry down. Of course, like this album has been a complete exercise in that process, because when you put out an album, when you do anything in life, you know, whether it's creative or relationship or, you know, academic for a lot of people that are in school right now, it takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability to show up every day and try to be yourself. It's like the hardest thing in the world is to do that. You know, we're, we're, we're so often just thinking to ourselves, oh, well, what does my professor want me to be? What does my like girlfriend want me to be more of? Like what? Like, cause you, we just tell ourselves we're not good enough. We need to be better. We need to be more. We need to be different because if we're better and more and different, more people will like us. And it's the same thing when you put out an album. It's like, well, what, what is marketable? What do people want? Like what, what is success? Like what, what is it going to look like from the outside for me to be doing this better and, and, and like look successful. And social media is like, is the epitome of that. Like you're, you're sort of always expected to kind of be like sharing this like image of what your brand is supposed to be and what like is supposed to be this, this, this big important thing or something like that. And Buddhism tells you like, no, you are yourself and that's good enough. And that's what people actually want. People actually just want you to, to just be you. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's really hard lesson when you're putting out an album because there's all the chatter in your head telling you you're not good enough and that, that the music isn't good and all that talk goes into your head. So this has been a, a really big step in, in the right direction for me to let go of that voice and, and just forge forward in my art. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that a lot of times musicians get stuck in like the same thing like that's on the radio and that like they think that everyone wants to hear and in my opinion and I think in the opinion of a lot of other people that like love music is that it's all about being who you are and being different and being interesting and it's not about like the same formula that like we've seen a million times that like will succeed it's about being yourself and like doing your own thing yeah and at the end of the day it just doesn't really matter right like you're even if you sell out like a stadium you could be Mm -hmm. depressed and like you know, so what's really the point? Is it is it to be famous, like because that or successful in like the standards of like commerce? You know, because yeah, that doesn't relate to the success that you're gonna feel in your heart and in your life. But what will is if you just say I'm gonna just be authentically creating what I want to, and maybe yeah. maybe that is is really typical pop music that is completely cookie cutter pop music. But you know, if that's what you're authentically like in your heart yeah. want to say, then more power to you. You know, it's you know it's the same thing with what you said though about like being different that is also an ego talking yeah you know that can be where like you're telling yourself oh i need to be different maybe that's That's not what your what your authentic self is wanting the art to be it just wants it to be a really simple two chord song that you're just going to pour your heart out to or whatever you know whatever Mm -hmm. it is i found that a lot when i was doing my poetry way back in the day is i would obsess so much about because slam poetry is all about there's there's five people in the random people in the audience that they all get a um scorecard and they just rate your poem you know on a scale from one to ten and at, and then they they drop the highest score, they drop the lowest score, and then the three middle scores they add up, and that's your score for your round. Hmm. That's what slam poetry is. It's judged poems, and then you have like a preliminary round, and then a semifinals, and then a finals, and the winner wins the slam. And like the very essence of that is so much based on being good for what the audience is going to like because you hmm. want to win, which is really weird. It's like a very competitive form of art, kind of. It's hard to get away from that feeling of wanting to write for the audience, you know. Mm-hmm. But I I just got so 
so kind of obsessed with like, oh, is this line going to get me that better score? And is this line going to get that laugh line that everyone's going to like? And, and then slam poetry ends up getting this sort of things just start, start sort of sounding the same or there's these like cadences and there's this there's this like rhythm to it that sort of ends up becoming very similar because everyone's sort of playing to the audience and playing to this like kind of lowest common denominator of who can get a better score. And that, that's kind of why I moved away from it and moved towards music and something that was like, no one's I'm not getting a scorecard for this. Like, I'm just going to play my songs and people are going to dig it or not. And yeah. that's fine. So we've talked a lot about or not a lot, but a little bit about success earlier. And like, how would you define success in your music and how have you found it or how are you waiting to find it? Success is going to always be measured by yourself. You know, you you are the only one that defines mm -hmm. what success is. Right. Y yes. And no. I mean, it depends on what you want out of music. Right. Yeah. For, for me, the choices that I made over the last uh, six, seven years have made it where finance like money is a part of what success successes for me yeah. because I'm a full-time musician. I make money by going out and playing shows and playing gigs. And that's my only way. I don't teach. I don't really do anything. I don't have any syndication or anything. And I have a mortgage. I have a family now. So obviously, that's like a part of what success means for me. I have to make ends meet and like mm -hmm. have a, you know, a, a basic sort of foundation of, of income. And I have over the last like several years since I left my full-time job and just moved to doing music full-time within like a year to maybe within two years, I was making the same that I was as a head chef at a restaurant and I make like a good living doing it. So there's that part of me that goes, okay, check one. Like you, you have a, a viable, you know, way of, of providing for yourself and for your family. That's like one form of success. How many people like listen to the music that I put out, you know, is it, how many followers do I have? How much Spotify traction do I have? And that is where you start getting into a real mess yeah. because those numbers are really subjective and no matter how big or small they are, they could always be bigger. And that's where I like kind of, that's the trap I fall into sometimes where mm -hmm. I don't, it's like, oh, if I don't have a, a certain video I put out, didn't get enough views or didn't get enough attention, then I, I don't feel successful that day or whatever. The other part of me that I, I always just lean into is the success of just being alive and just doing it, yeah. you know, just, just being a musician, sharing your music, going to live gigs and making that one-on-one -on -one connection with someone that goes like this whole week since I just put out an album every day I'm getting like text messages from family from friends from random people that like acquaintances that just got the vinyl in the mail and you know just that feeling of hey I did it I put a lot of energy into making something that was expensive and challenging and hard and poured my heart into it and I tried to be as vulnerable as I could be and I tried to and I did it the best that I could you know well, am I on the billboard charts next year next month whatever no like am I playing Red Rocks next week no but I'm where I'm at right now I'm playing fun shows for people that love me. I'm doing the best that I can. And this is the expression of where I am today. Yeah. And that's success. It's success because it exists. It's success because in 10 years or 20 years, my son is going to be able to like play a vinyl that I made about the first time I kissed his mom. Like if that was the only person that listened to it, wouldn't that be a success enough? Yeah, that's insane to think about. So one thing about success that like I've personally been thinking about is that like once you achieve your goal, then you have to do something else. Like you're mm -hmm. never there. It's a, like a moving, the finish line's always moving. So how has that like been a challenge? 
challenge or not a challenge for you. It's exactly coming to terms with that, you know, the fact that it is so transitory and that you would never feel success. Like if you if success is always going to be measured by something outside of yourself, then you will never feel successful. Yeah. You know, so the only way to feel successful and be successful in your heart is to find it in yourself and to know that it's there already. And it's not some metric that you're going to hit that's going to make you feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just this. I get that with with anxiety. You know, I definitely suffer from from anxiety where I'll get like really worked up about especially like this whole putting out an album and looking at the ticket sales for each one. How many people are going to be there? It's like this anxiety of it. And I realized a while ago that your your anxiety fixates on the outside thing. And then the second that that's gone, like I got my album release show at the Lariat. Like it was a huge success. We sold tons of merch. The the owners nice. were like, you you guys sold more tickets on a Thursday night in the off season than like pretty much any band could have done here. Like you did a great job. Everyone was so stoked. It was a beautiful night. And then like, how quickly is my anxiety just going to jump to the Fort Collins show and then jump mm-hmm. to the Denver show? And then after all these shows are done, I'll focus off. It'll find something else. It will never stop. And that's like success, right? You're always going to just place it on something outside of yourself. But you have to realize the anxiety is not about anything. It's just me yeah. feeling it and it desperately attaching itself to other things in my life. Yeah. So I guess the whole like crux of the whole thing is, okay, how do I stop this chasing mentality and the sort of tomorrow mentality and this looking towards what's going to fix it mentality and sort of just be here? Let's change it up a little bit. So I read this article about the seed, your song, The Seeds We Sow and The Marshall Fires. Can you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. The Seeds We Sow is a song that I wrote in fall of 2020. If you guys up here got decimated with smoke coming yeah. from the fires in that, that year, I'm in Longmont. So I was driving up from Denver mm-hmm. and you could see the line in the sky where yeah. the smoke started billowing into like Longmont and Loveland and Fort Collins from mm-hmm. like the dichotomy of from of from Denver. It was stark, you know, a line in the sky of like the upside down world, you know, and stranger things like this diff- this stark difference. And then, then that same day starts snowing. So mm-hmm. I remember it was like ashing on us and snowing at the same time. The pandemic was still like raging pretty hard and it just pulled this song out of me the seeds we sow it's about accepting that we're not really in that much control of what's going to happen and we're only able to just try to grow from it try to accept it and then there's a line and it's not even like this this sugar-coated thing where sometimes people have that feeling and they go oh it'll all work out like oh it'll all be okay it's like no maybe it's not going to be okay maybe it's going to get worse Mm -hmm. than it is now and we're still not in control and we the only thing we can do is still to just accept it and learn from it yeah you know i wrote that song from that fire and then a year, i put it out as my first single and it was just really weird coincidence i put it out at the same day that the marshall fire down in boulder really happened. yeah oh my god that's like crazy how things work out sometimes yeah, yeah. auspicious and coincidental and but like are there ever really coincidences though may yeah i don't know so i mean that that happened and i was like oh my god and we shouted it out to a lot of people. I got onto some fundraiser drives where I was able Mm -hmm. to like kind of give the song to them to use and to like use for promotion. And I did like a benefit concert and stuff 
where I used the song for the benefit concert. And so it ended up being good that I was able to share it. Not good that that fire happened. And Matt, <laughs> yeah. I was just down there. I mean, it really was there's it's just it's it's really odd because we're used to the fires being in the more rural areas. But that was such a yeah. important and scary fire because he just took out these like, like home, home, big, and... big home residences, like just yeah. in the middle of Lafayette. And it's like, oh, it's insane. It was insane. I, we, I had a show that day with my buddy coming from Netherland mm-hmm. area. So he's like on the far side of Boulder trying yeah. to get to Denver for a show with me. We're just talking about stuff on the phone. He's like, dude, I don't know. Something's going on. I think I see smoke. There's cop cars. And then it's like, oh man, they're shutting the road down. He's like, ah, I don't know. I gotta go. And he's like, yeah. he's seeing flames. He was like in the middle of it and had to like swerve around the mm-hmm. this farmland and get out of there. And what would you say is the favorite song that you've ever written? I know that's a hard question. It can be like a couple or like your favorite era of your songwriting. I, and I wrote, I, I guess it's, uh, is this a cop out? Like the next one, <laughs> the, la- like the last one. I, I guess I'm always stoked on like the one that I just wrote kind mm-hmm. of. I'm like, oh, this one's going to be really good, you know, and sharing that. And like, I always get like a really juiced on like the one that I'm working on. And then yeah. I try to play it for everyone, like my friends and family, because part like I just want to, you know, share a new song with them. And then the other part is like, oh, I want to like work on it yeah. in like a pressure situation, but not like too much pressure, mm-hmm. you know, like where, you know, hey, listen to my song and like they'll stop and be quiet and I'll play my two minute, three minute song. And then it's like, oh, did you like this part? Did you like that part? And I kind of re- refine it, figure out like where the people are like really digging. Like you could kind of you could feel when like, oh, people are really paying attention right now mm-hmm. or they're, oh, I'm kind of losing them. You know, you can yeah. sort of feel it almost like comedy. You know, there's this interaction and you feel that interaction when you're intimate with people a lot more than when you're on stage. You know, I mean, you feel it on stage, too, in a really big way. It just depends on the crowd and stuff. But I don't know. I really like doing that. But I, lo- I love Lean In just for the fact that it's really like meaningful and emotional yeah. to me. One of my favorite songs off the album is the song Honeymoon's Over. I just love the way it turned out. I like the songwriting is, is pretty strong. But then the harmonies that I'm doing with Bonnie Culpepper, it's a duet. We I feel like we really crush it. And then the way the instrumentation worked out was so fun. We had our drummer picked up a washboard and started doing nice. like washboard playing. And I brought in one of the best organ vintage Leslie speaker organ players in Denver. And he came late, laid down the whole track. And the whole thing for me is like, oh, this is this is a jam right now. So that's awesome. Do you have any like songs or albums that you really love that you didn't write from other artists? Yeah. Like any particular favorite? I mean, I love I love Taj Mahal. That's he's one of my favorite musicians. And I love all his albums. He's like my hero in a lot of ways because he he's a blues artist, but he doesn't just twi- play 12 bar blues. He plays like a lot of different kind of variations. And he's a real scholar of roots music, particularly African-American roots music, you know, Caribbean music that came up because half his family was Caribbean. So he mm-hmm. has this sort of Zydeco-esque flair in some of his songs. And I, I just feel like he he's my hero because he takes the music, that roots music that inspired him, but he makes something that is him and very unique to Taj Mahal and to what he's doing. That That's what I love in my music. I love being able to take inspiration from something, but not copying it and yeah. making it new and making it what I'm inspired by. So I, I love Taj's music. I was I listened to a ton of Bob Dylan growing up too when I was just learning about like the singer-songwriter vibe, Dylan, and of course, the Beatles. My dad was the biggest Beatles fan, so we got into that. What are some of your favorite venues that you've played at so far? There's some really, really good venues. I just played up at the Mish 
like a few weeks ago and that place was cool that was really fun really good vibes it's super cool to be on the river i love playing all like the legit old school like colorado location so we headlined and played the gold hill inn which is i wouldn't say it's like the mish of boulder it's like an old building i mean it was like built in the, i think the 1800s like mid 1800s it's the, the whole town of gold hill is this just old gold rush town everything is still the old buildings it's got a vibe and the people just go there every weekend from boulder they just head up there there's always great bands playing we played there twice this summer that was really fun and then for denver some of my favorite spots i played the the denver botanic gardens they have this big concert series in the summer in this like big sunken part of the gardens there's like few thousand people. I opened for a band there a few years back, and that was a really incredible just opportunity and good time and a lot of venues, <laughs> a yeah. lot of good spots. <laughs> Do you have any like on your list that you're like, oh, I really want to play there? I'd love to play Dylan Amphitheater. I, that's my one of my favorite, if not my favorite venues right now is Dylan Amphitheater. It's so gorgeous on the lake. And me and my wife got married oh, really? on Dylan Lake. On the, You could see it from the Dylan Amphitheater. We'll, we'll always like be at shows and be like, there it is. There. <laughs> so that's that would be kind of special emotionally and it's it's of course an incredible venue i would like i would really love to play just some more shows up in fort collins the swing station was really cool i'd like to play there in the summer sometime i think the yeah. outdoor venue would be more fun washington's would be great aggie avos avos i gotta play avos soon that's just a vibe there yeah they're so sick everything there is like incredible they have bluegrass jam nights on like wednesday or tuesday nights and they go into like three in the morning. I'll come up for one of those. Yeah, they're yeah. so cool. I, I did one of my first open mics ever. Was that really? Because I when I first moved to Colorado 12 years ago, I moved mm-hmm. to Fort Collins. So I, I was working at Lucille's at the breakfast restaurant and Enzio's, which is this old Italian place that's not there anymore. And like working doubles, like get there at seven in the morning at, at Lucille's and work until like 11 or 12 at Enzio's like three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. And then I had like one day off a week basically and was working my hard. And then that's after that is when I went up to Shambhala Mountain Center. And then from there, I went to India. I lived there for like eight months and then I came back to Colorado. That's so cool. Had living in India affected your music at all, would you say? I practiced a lot. I think it kind of influenced my music and realizing how important music is. Yeah. You know, because I would be on the street just practicing and playing like, you know, this is like a decade ago. So I was still, I've been playing for maybe five, six, seven years, but that's still pretty new in music. Yeah. And so I had my handful of songs, I had like a handful of originals. I had the handful of Beatles songs I knew, the handful of blues songs that I knew. And I would just kind of sit on the street and play music. And almost every time it was, it would end up like with an interaction, like someone wanting to take me to meet their family and, and play and they'd like make me a cup of tea and, or someone want to like have another instrument and play a new song with me or, or get my number and, and, and all this stuff and really made me understand that music is the international language. And yeah. that no matter where anyone's coming from, music is going to touch them and I'm going to be able to communicate with them. And the more that I've grown in my in my technique and ability to play and improvise different stuff, I really see how like impactful that is. You know, I was down in Mexico, I guess like right before the pandemic and just people that we don't speak the language at all, but then we could just start playing and it's like we can completely communicate with each other. Like, yeah, how cool is that? You know, it's it's really, really insanely magical. So being being out there influenced me in that way. I wanted to learn like some Indian ragas and like learn like the technique of some of the playing, but I wasn't able to do that at that time. And it yeah. was, not, was not good enough. And it was also it's also the way that they relate to music in India for ragas and Indian classical music is not at all how we relate to music here. I felt like there wasn't so many like amateur musicians. It mm-hmm. was kind of like you take it really seriously. You study for like a decade. I mean, I couldn't just, hey, I want to take 
like a sitar lesson. No, that that's not a thing. You would have to get a guru that would want to take you on and commit to like years of being with them, like living with them for someone to teach you how to that's play. That's insane. Yeah. The relationship that you have to your teacher is like a spiritual relationship where you have a guru, you do whatever they say. I mean, they, they tell you, okay, you need to hike up to this mountain and get this one thing and come back for me. It's going to take three months. Like you go and you do that. You know, they'll sometimes they'll make you do weird things just to sh- to prove your devotion. And they'll you'll you'll have to eat a certain way. You'll have to sleep a certain way. You'll have to practice yoga a certain way. You'll have to meditate a certain way. All of these things to get that music to be like a part of you. And that 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 is the true like essence of these Indian classical musicians that are at that high level. All of them had had to have that relationship with someone like that. It's it's very different than how we think about it. It's cool. So my my violin player and one of my best buds, Coleman Smith, he lives down in Buena Vista. He just went on a tour to India. I think he's been two times, maybe three with a band called the Bluegrass Journeyman. And they have gone on tours in India and they bring American bluegrass music and then they fuse it with some Indian music as well. And their um, dobro player, Billy, me and him were, were talking. He has a teacher, a guru teacher in, in India. He hasn't like had to live with him a long time, but he has like had to study with him in like intensive ways mm-hmm. and learn to learn some of these ragas because it's not just something that someone's going to teach you. Like these ragas, these series of notes and cadences, it's not like just a scale. It's like a part of themselves. It's a part of their culture. It's a part of heritage has gone back for millennia. So it's not just something that they're going to teach you. It's something you have to you have to like completely own it. And what he was saying was that these musicians, it's like they'll they'll play in the same key for like years. They'll play in C sharp. That's the only hmm. key they'll play in. It's just a totally different way of how we think about music. You know, it's not about the keys. It's about these these ragas and like it's just a totally different way of exploring music and thinking about it. That blew my mind though. He was telling me that there's guys he met that they'll only play in and and then it's like, well, what what do two people do? It's like, well, if you're like the lesser, the younger one, then like you'll you'll have to play their key like to the guy mm-hmm. that's when they practice like they, they, they play their key. And it's like, how intimate would you know what D sounds like? Yeah. You know, like you would know if all you ever did. For you would years know so life. intimately like what the feeling of that scale of that that chord is and that key is. It's wild. That is crazy. This is kind of all we have time for. But before we end off the interview, is there anything that you want to talk about or like anything that you want to plug? I, I you know, I don't know who's listening out there and when this is going to air check out the album go to spotify it's already up there it's called lean in david lawrence and the spoonful thanks bailey for having me i appreciate yeah, being of here course. thank you so much for coming in Sunday going. 
Uh, I'm a little frightened, DJ Lone Star. Well, your Sundays don't have to be scary anymore. Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. for some genuine Southern comfort, high-energy music, and conversations you can't find anywhere else. What if I'm so scared? Then bless your heart. So imagine you're finally able to take that trip to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia to see the iconic, vibrant-colored coral reefs filled with new species of fish everywhere you look. But when you dive into the water, you're greeted with a much different reality. Instead, you see white barren corals in an empty city. This reality is becoming far too common due to an increase in coral bleaching events. Coral bleaching can happen for a number of reasons. The World Wildlife Fund says that it can happen due to temperature increases as little as 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Coral bleaching can also happen due to other reasons as well, like low tides, too much sunlight, and pollution. As climate change and other issues like pollution are becoming more and more of a problem, coral bleaching is also increasing. According to the Australian government, the Great Barrier Reef saw its fourth bleaching event within the past seven years in 2022. This was a severe bleaching event, which means that over 60% of the individual coral communities were affected. This bleaching event also took place during a La Nina year, which is extremely peculiar because La Nina seasons usually bring cooler weather and more rainfall and cloud coverage. This is the first bleaching event that the Australian government has seen during a La Nina season. Although coral bleaching events in places like Australia and all around the world are getting to be more common, there are things everyone can do, even people in landlocked states like Colorado. The U.S. Environmental and Protection Agency, otherwise known as the EPA, has some suggestions on how you can help save coral reefs. They say that when you visit coastal areas, you should practice safe and responsible diving and snorkeling, and opt to use a reef-friendly sun protection. When it comes to everyday life, the EPA suggests that you recycle and dispose of your trash properly, minimize use of fertilizers, use environmentally friendly transportation, reduce stormwater runoff, save energy at work and home, be conscious when buying aquarium fish, and spread the word on how to save coral reefs. If you would like to know more about coral bleaching and how you can get involved in the effort to help save corals, you can find more information on websites like the EPA's, NOAA's, and the Coral Restoration website. Hi, I'm Todd Parkmore. And I'm Rob Squires. And we're from Big Head Todd and the Monsters, and you're listening to KCSU, Colorado's best radio station. Today in national news, a New Jersey councilwoman was shot and killed. Ewene Stemfor was found in her car dead to multiple gunshot wounds. The mayor of the town said beyond her dedication to our community, I can share that she was a woman of deep faith and worked hard to integrate her strong Christian beliefs into her daily life as a person and a community leader, end quote. At this point in time, officials have no suspect or motive, but their investigation is ongoing. Information from this story comes from CNN. 
a homeschooling system, is accused of having Nazi and white supremacy-related resources, and Ohio State government is investigating the situation. The school has over 3,000 users, and despite the claims, even if they are proven true, Ohio unfortunately can't really do too much to change the curriculum. CNN is following the story. Information from this story does come from CNN. A large glacier near Seattle has completely disappeared, and researchers have been tracking its decline for years now. CNN said, quote, It has completely disappeared. This was the biggest glacier in this part of the mountain range. It was exceptional, Petal told CNN. The glacier could reform, he said, but as we continue to warm into the future, that will be even less hospitable, said CNN. And to wrap up national news, we have a fun story for you. Groundhog Day was yesterday and the groundhog saw his shadow, which predicts six more weeks of winter. And I don't know about you, but it has been a brutal winter. So we'll see how six more weeks of it goes. Thank you for listening to my national news updates. Stay tuned for a coral bleaching feature with me after the break. My name is Eliza Drotard. This is your RMR Sports Report. In men's basketball news, the team is now on a three-game losing streak with their most recent loss to Boise State in Boise, 59-80. They will be playing on Tuesday against UNLV here in Fort Collins, and then they will be playing on Saturday as well against Utah State here at Moby Arena. In women's basketball, the team will be facing off against Utah State on Thursday morning, and they faced off recently against Air Force. Again, another loss. This is their third loss in a row as well to Air Force at the Air Force Academy, this time only by 2.65-267, a very close matchup for the girls indeed. In women's tennis, the girls took the W against MSU Denver at Denver 4-0, and they will be facing off on Sunday, February 5th, against San Francisco here at the CSU Tennis Complex. In women's swim and dive, the team faced off against Northern Colorado in Greeley and took the W once again. They will be facing off on Thursday through Saturday at the Air Force Diving Invitationals at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And finally, McKenna Hofchild was named in the top 10 for the Nancy Lipperman Award, which is the award that recognized the top point guards in the NCAA Women's D1 Division. Congratulations to McKenna Hofchild for making it to the top 10. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. I'm Portia Cook reporting your weather for Thursday, February 2nd. Today was beautifully sunny, but still a little cool with a high of 40. Tonight brings us clear skies, light winds, and a low of 21. Moving into Friday, the temperatures jump back up a bit to a high of 46, with temperatures dropping to a low of 30 later on in the night. You will see some clouds in the morning on Saturday that will eventually make way for sunny skies in the afternoon. Saturday gives us a high of 47 and a low of 26. Sunday weather is staying fairly consistent with a high of 45 and a low of 29. And as for next week's weather, you can tune into the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Portia Cook with your KCSU Weather Report. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. 
We'd like to thank our guests today, our news producer, Reese Granger, as well as the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Portia. And I'd like to thank you, Kira. And finally, we couldn't do this without you. Dear listener, thank you. If you missed any part of today's show, you can find the RMR podcast on kcsufm.com under news or podcast. You can also find us on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcast by searching KCSU News. And with